welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike and I'm hosting to you. Ricky is not on the show. He is spending some time with his family. So we hope he enjoys that here in this summertime. But I'm here with you today, and this is episode number 486. 486, and we're going to be doing something new. Uh, not knowing how, if I was going to be on the show this week, kind of got with Ricky, and he's like, I'm not going to be on the show this week. And so I decided to do something different. And I titled this show Reading Those Whom We Disagree. And it's going to be this show is going to be on Charles Finney and Revival. And kind of talk about that and read through kind of lecture one of his lectures on Revival. And to kind of work through what he is saying. I think it's kind of important to think about, especially Finney, because of his importance in the Second Great Awakening. And there's discussions and about whether the Second Great Awakening was actually an awakening or not. So there's thinking through some of these ideas is important. So who is... Charles Finney. Well, Charles Finney was born in 1792. He would die in 18, 1875. And he was an evangelist. He would go around and kind of what we see today in kind of the tent revivals, following the footsteps in some sense of a George Whitfield or even a Charles Wesley. Sorry, John Wesley. And that's what Finney did. And he was a Presbyterian minister. There is controversies between the new measures in which he is thinking about and writing about and talking about versus the old measures, which were of rooted in the tradition of Presbyterianism. He would later relocate into Ohio, and that's where he would be. He was a president of Oberlin College, I think that's how you pronounce it, in Ohio. And so that's kind of who he is. And what's interesting is he's probably the main evangelist for the Second Great Awakening. And he hinges on this. Well, he would... He gave a series of lectures at his church on revivalism. What revivalism is, what is it not? And we have it, and I have the book here. You can see it. I got it 90% off. It was like $1. Um, I mean, it's not free, but it's close. Um, I've read parts of it. My wife has read most of it. And I, I think it just be good to go through and to read and to think about. Cause I do think he has some very clear issues 
that we as Christians about 150 years later should be thinking about. We should be thinking about revival. What does it mean? How does this work? Especially in light of our current situation, which has become more anti-Christian from Charles Finney's days, has come more antagonistic against God. And so to think about even something 150 years ago and to consider what is being said, even when we disagree about it, helps us to think through these things biblically, theologically, and to really evaluate with it and to be balanced. And I think that's important because I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, reading those whom we disagree gives you the point that I'm going to disagree with him. There are theological understandings that Finney and I will not share in common, and it plays out. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't read them. We shouldn't seek to understand what he's trying to say. And to think about it, again, biblically, theologically, and also within the paradigm of how has the church thought about these things throughout history. And I'll bring some of that up as with it. So here it is, lecture one. What is what a revival of religion is? And the text in which he's going to kind of think about this is, O Lord, revive thy heart in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. That's from Habakkuk 3 chapter or chapter three, verse two. So Finney writes, it is supposed that the prophet Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah and that this prophecy was uttered in anticipation of the Babylon captivity, Babylonish captivity. Look at that judgment, which were speedily to come upon his nation, the, the nation, the soul of his prophet was wrought up to an agony, and he cried out in his distress, O Lord, revive thy work, as if he had say, O Lord, grant that they, thy judgment will not make Israel desolate in the midst of these awful years. Let the judgments of God be made the means of reviving religion among us. In wrath, remember mercy. I think, I mean, I'm not recalling exactly how I was taught about Habakkuk in relation to Babylon. We'll assume it's true. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But just think about just that paragraph. And the thinking of in God's wrath, Remember mercy. This isn't the first time this idea is coming as the Babylonian captivity is coming. I think we see this in Exodus. In God's wrath, 
Moses appeals to God to save the people because God is going to destroy them and make his name look bad. And so to think about what Finney is saying here is to, I think, to think about what does it mean for God to remember us in wrath, in his wrath, to remember mercy in his wrath. And then I think it's simply to say that, yes, God judged the Israelites, but he didn't forget the promises. God remembers the promises and all the promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And to think about that. So I think to start this off and for even for us to think about knowing that we're going to disagree with them later on, and it's going to come shortly rather than later, that in wrath, God remembers us. He shows mercy on us. Goes on. This is again Finney. Religion is the work of man. It is something for man to do. It consists in obeying God with and from the heart. It is man's duty. It is true. God induces him to do it. He influences him by his spirit because of his great wickedness and reluctance to obey. If it's not necessary for God to influence men, if God, if men were disposed to obey God, then there would be no occasion to pray, O Lord, revive thy work. The grounds of necessity for such a prayer is that men are wholly indisposed to obey, and unless God interposes his influence of his spirit, a man on earth will not a man on earth will ever obey the commands of God. Kind of just to think through them. I do think there's an important thing here that we often miss. And when we say Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. I think Vinny is correct that Christianity is a religion. I mean, it's also a relationship. So I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not going to contradict saying that. It's both. It's both and. It's both the relationship that we have with the triune God through the mediator of Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. But it's also a religion because God has commanded us to forsake sin, to pursue holiness, to obey his commands. And so it is a is a religion in that way. And I like the emphasis that it's with and from the heart. That's right. We are to obey from the heart. I think he can be a little tighter when he says like he influences him by his spirit. I think regenerated hearts in is not just influenced by, but I would say that the spirit enables them to obey. And it's not a mere influence and it's not also to kind of to say what it's not it's not like it's um 
try to think of how I would say it's not a chorist. It's not the right word. Um, obedience either. It's not a forced obedience. That it's as as Philippians would say. It's we walk in the gospel, knowing that it is God by His Spirit who works in us. That it's this connection we both do it. So I think it's it's more than just mere influence, kind of as he says. Anyways, back to Finney. A religion, a revival of religion, quote unquote, presupposes such a declension. Almost all religions in the world have have been produced by revivals. God has found it necessary to take advantage of the explicit ex- excitability there is in mankind to produce a powerful excitement among them before he can lead them to obey. Men who are spiritually sluggish, there are so many of these things that lead their minds off from religion and to oppose the influence of the gospel. It is necessary to raise up an excitement among them till the tide raises so high as to sweep away the opposing obstacles. They must be so excited that they will not break these, break over these counteracting influences before they will obey God. Not that exciting feelings is religion, for it's not, but it is the exciting desire, appetite, and feeling that prevents religion. The will is, in a sense, enslaved to the carnal and worldly desires. Hence, it is necessary to awaken men to the sense of guilt and danger, and thus produce an excitement of the counter-feeling and desires which will break the power of carnal and worldly desires and leave the will free to obey God. I think there's a lot there to think about. There's a lot packed in that statement, a lot that I think starts revealing some of the ideas of Finney that will play out later in this book when he's developing some of his practical aspects. And I think one thing that I want to push back a little bit and maybe wrongly, I'll admit it, is this idea of excitements is what kind of leads this breaking down or even destroying the excitements of the world for something better. Kind of how I'm seeing this is that Finney is kind of starting out with like, look, ever as humans, we get excited about things. We have excitements. And that by nature, kind of as he says it, that we're spiritually sluggish. And that there are many things that lead our minds off of religion and to the oppose and to oppose the influence of the gospel. Now again, I think he can sure this up a little bit. Now this is also coming that I hold to doctrine of total depravity that men by nature oppose God 
they're not the evil, the most evil that they can be, but that every ounce of their nature has been affected by sin and lead to ungodliness. And that's who we are by nature. We are people who are plagued by sin, both mentally and both physically. We are affected by sin on our morals, what we think is right, what we think is wrong, on our logic. Everything has been affected by the fall. So, I mean, men are spiritually sluggish because men don't care. Carnal people don't care about spiritual things. That's what 1 Corinthians tells us. They don't. I think it's important to remember when we think about revivals. It's going to come up here. Hopefully, I might just skip to it because I think it's important to think through. Is that it's not just about excitements. It's not about our feelings in religion. The question is, what is true? But I think another question we have to consider with this is how does God save sinners? I think we look at the Valley of Dry Bones. He needs to resurrect their hearts. Or we can go to Jeremiah. He has to turn the hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. God has to do something to change them. I think you start seeing why people would say that Finney may hold to the heretical doctrine of Pelagianism, the denial of kind of our depravity or universal sin. Um, if not very least, you could see maybe semi-Pelagian understandings in here that the destruction of sin is not as powerful on human life. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't have feelings or have emotions and be ones who are there. But we need to understand their role. And, and in some sense, we could say the will is, in a sense, enslaved by the carnal and worldly desires. I mean, I would take out, in a sense, the will is enslaved by carnal and worldly desires. So we do need to awaken men and women to a sense of guilt and danger because they're going to be judged by God. So they need to. Again, I think these are little seeds as he kind of points out. I think these are some very serious cracks in his theological foundation. So kind of looking back, keeping going, 
Finney says, look back at the history of the Jews and you will see that God used used it to maintain religion among them by special occasions when they were to be a great excitement and people were turned to the Lord. And after they'd been thus revived, it would be a short time before so many of your contra, con, contra, counteracting influence brought to bear upon them that religion would decline and keep on declining. So God would have time, so to speak, to convict them of sin by his spirit and rebuke them by his providence and gain the attentions to the masses to great subject of salvation, thus producing a widespread awakening of religion interest and consequentially a revival of religion. Then the counteracting causes would come again and operate. Religion would decline. The nation would be swept away and the vortex of luxury, idolatry and pride. And again, just to comment on here, judges, Kings, first Chronicles or the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, we see that that's I think he's understanding the cycle in which the Jewish people keep going about in their sin and spiraling spiraling down and out of control. Um that's a point that is picked up and we should note. Finney. So there's little principle in the church, so little firmness and stable of purpose, and that Unless the religious feeling of awakening are kept excited, counting worldly feelings of excitement and prevailing, the, and men will not obey God, they will have so little knowledge and their principles so weak that unless they are excited, they will go back to the path of duty and do nothing to promote the glory of God. The state of the world is, is still such and probably will be until the millennium is fully come that religion must be mainly promoted by means of revivals how long how often as the experience have been tried to bring the church to act steadily for god without these periodical excitements many good men have supposed and still suppose that the best way to promote religion is to go along uniformly and gather in ungodly gradually and without excitement but however such However, sound such reasoning may appear to be in the abstract. Facts demonstrate its futility. If the church were far advanced in knowledge and had the stability of principles enough to keep awake, and the course and such a course would do, but the church is so little enlightened that there are so many counteracting causes that the church will go will not go steadily to work without special interest in being awakened. As the millennium advances, it is probable that these periodic excitements will be unknown. Then the church will be enlightened, and the counteracting cause removed, and the entire church will be in the state of habitual and steady obedience to God. The entire church will stand and take an infant mind and cultivate it for God. Children will be trained up in the way they should go, and there will be no such tolerance torrents of worldliness and fashion and covetousness to bear away the piety of the church as such as excitement of withdrawal of a revival is withdrawn. So he goes in here. And I think we can say with him, there is so little principle in the church, so little firmness and stability of purpose in the church today. I think he is recognizing an issue in his church and it's, in some sense, continued on today. I would probably even go farther is that this is 
a constant battle the church must always fight and that's what he is that i mean and that is also what he is saying that is still such and probably will be till the millennium has fully come that religion must be mainly promoted by means of revivals now he's going to find revivals um i actually think it's in the next chapter let me go ahead and give you kind of his definition of revival. So we kind of have a better understanding. So this is what he would say a revival is, and this is in the second section of this chapter. It is the renewal of the first love of Christians resulting in the awakening and conversions of sinners to God. Um, in one sense, revival of religion in a community is also arousing, a quickening, and reclaiming of, of more or less backsliding church and more or less general awakening of all classes and attention to the claims of God. So we see here, and thinking through this, that revivals is more about the idea of rejuvenating the church and its sleepiness and less to do about God's, as Jonathan Edwards would say, but a um, hundred years before this, that it's God's special outworking as he pours out the spirits among men. And these are kind of now the two views and we see these played out in each respected camp on how you feel. And so there is this, we see kind of him slowly bringing about what this revival is and Larry here has you know made a comment I think is it is appropriate to think about that the spirit will cause the flesh to be excited but the flesh will never reach the spirit and I think that's a very important aspect and not that Finney would disagree with it I don't think he would I think it's I feel like he would say that it's I mean, it's something that we do move. Again, I think early on here in Finney is maybe a little bit hard. Not about hard. It's not as as clear as he will be. Um, And I, I think, and even as you're saying, I think Finney puts too much stock in mankind and this excitement and the moving and um, being awakened to what it is. And in a real sense, Finney's right. The church needs to be awakened to the gospel. And that this is a, a battle every generation has to go through. We are so easily entangled in our sins. We are people who live in a culture 
that is against God. The culture rubs off on us whether we know it or not. So I think we can say here with Finney that yes, we counter worldly feelings and excitements. And they do cause us to not obey God fully. But I think it does, again, having a strong understanding of who we are and the effects of sin on us pulls this, pulls us back into it. So what is revival? Well, he's going to speak of what revival of religion is not first. And we're going to skip ahead here. So he starts off by saying kind of his first point on a revival of a religion is not a miracle. Okay. So he defines a miracle has been generally defined to be a divine interference, setting aside or suspending the laws of nature. It is not a miracle in this sense. All the laws and matters and minds remains in force and they're neither supposed suspended or set aside in revival. So I don't kind of thinking through his understanding of a miracle. It's not that I disagree with it, but I think it's more. Yes, miracles are divine interference and in setting aside or suspending the laws of nature. But what happens to a human's heart when their heart changes from a heart of stone, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? What, what do you call when God takes a dead man spiritually and raises him again into new life? Are these any less of a miracle? I mean, I think that's the point. I think what he's taking here is using a definition of miracle that is influenced by enlightenment thinking. And we think about when Moses holds his hands up and God extends the day. That is a miracle. It is not denying that. But I think his definitions deny some of these other things that are maybe more spiritual in nature that are also kind of miraculous. I think it's narrow, too narrow, too much plagued by philosophies that frankly didn't have God as its center not built upon God's word. He continues on. He says, it is not a miracle according to another definition of the term miracle, something above the powers of nature. That is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. It consists entirely of the right exercise of the powers of nature. It is just that and nothing else. 
when mankind becomes religious, they are not enabled to put forth exertions which they are unable to hold on. I mean when mankind becomes religious, they are not enabled to put forth exertions which they were unable to before to put forth. They only exert powers that which they've had before in a different way and use them for the glory of God. So I guess he's saying that revival of religion is not a miracle. I'm not quite understanding what he's saying there. I'll admit it on air. So he's he's saying there so he says there's there's nothing in religion behind ordinary powers of nature. It's just the entire it's consists entirely of the right exercise of the power the powers of nature. And I think he's thinking about our nature. Or not. Anyways, three. He says, it's not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in, in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of constituted means, as such so as many other efforts produced by the application of means. There may be a miracle among its antecedents causings, but there may not be. The apostles employed miracles simply as a means by which they attest the attention to their message and establish its divine authority. But a miracle is not the revival. The miracle is one thing. The revival that follows is quite another thing. The revivals in the apostles' days were, count, were connected with miracles, but they were not miracles. Here we kind of get to the, the matter, the meat of the matter, the, the point in which I would probably disagree with him most and again Jonathan Edwards has written on this he presents his idea of revival you can read him um, on the internet Princeton has published all of his his entire works on the internet you can read his works on revival And one thing, and the editors note this here, is that that Finney and Edwards fundamentally dis disagree. Edwards, when he's looked at revival in New England, what he saw was this uncontained, massive amount of people repenting 
and trusting in Christ for their salvation. They were becoming Christians. And when we think about passages like John 3, no one knows where the Spirit will blow. No one knows who will be who will be touched by the Spirit. But we see the effects of the Spirit. We see the leaves blow when the wind passes by. We don't see the wind. We don't know where the wind is going. We see the effects of the wind in the leaves. So what John's point is in the beginning part of John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And who's born again? You can get this idea of the wind and the spirit blowing wherever he chooses. This is what Edwards sees as being a revival. That an unusual occurrence of God's grace given either locally or more broadly like the First Great Awakening in which sinners are coming to the Lord. And these are great things. This is, we see happening in the First Great Awakening with not only Edwards, but John Wesley. And others. And we should look that and think about it. What's always amazed me, and when you learn about church history, is the Second Great Awakening doesn't happen in England. Finney goes over there and he falls flat. It's not happening. It's not, it's not going. And maybe that's, we should see that and say, well, and look at the church today and say, maybe that's, maybe he's right. When you look at it. But I think what Edward sees and what we see throughout church history is that God gives his grace to locales, to nations, in which people are coming to Christ in great numbers. I mean, in one sense, the Reformation is a revival. It's a big revival. Where we find the fundamental truths of justification by faith alone. We're saved by grace and not by works. That we focus on Christ as our Savior. And that we know all of this by the grace of God in the Scripture. The Reformation is probably the, arguably the biggest Reformation in church history, biggest revival in church history, as the gospel is found and sent out among the world. I mean, people like to say Calvin didn't believe in evangelism, and yet Geneva in Calvin's time is sending people all over the world to preach the gospel. People are coming to Geneva to learn and to go back. John Knox in Scotland, for example. And this is where I think fun, that I disagree with Finney. The act of salvation is miraculous. 
every sinner who repents and trusts in Christ, a miracle has happened in his heart. And while I think Finney dials in exactly kind of issues, issues that we're doing now, we see his kind of reliance on seemingly, seemingly he's relying on powers of nature. This becomes important with the anxious bench and those sinners who are almost there. You put them on the anxious seats and you preach to them. You preach hard to them. You show them their sins. We should show sinners their sins. But I think that's where our agreement with it is wrong. That it's God who will grip their hearts. Now, does God use earthly powers to achieve revival? Well, yes, he uses the preaching of the word. He uses Christians living out their faith to bring people to faith. When they evangelize them and hear the gospel and the intentionality of going out and preaching the gospel to people. God uses that for revivals. So it's not just powers of nature, but you need the power of God to do it. Because he's the one who will change the hearts. He continues on. And just kind of read a little bit more. I said, so this is funny. I said that a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. The means which God has enjoyed for the production of a revival. Doubtless have the natural tendency to produce a revival. Otherwise, God would not have enjoined them. But means will not produce a revival, we all know, without the blessing of God. So there he's, so we need the blessing of God. I think we need more than that, but we can't have anything less than that. Finney again, no more will gain when it is sown, produce a crop without the blessing of God. For it is impossible for us to say that there will be not a, is not as direct of influence or agency from God to produce a crop of grain as there is to produce a revival. What are the laws of nature's according to that which is supposed that the grain yields a crop? There is nothing but the constitute manner of the operations of God. So in the Bible, the word of God is compared to a grain. The preaching is compared to sowing the seed and the results of the springing up and growth of the crop. And the result is just as philosophical in the one case as, as in the other and as naturally connected with the cause or more correctly, a revival is as natural a result of the use of the appropriate means as a crop is of the appropriate means. It is true that religion does not properly belong to the category of cause and effect, but although it is not caused by means, yet it has an occasion, it may also naturally and certainly result from the occasion as the crop does from the cause. <clears throat> so what is Finney saying here? That revival happens 
with the right use of means. That we need God's blessings, just like a farmer needs God's blessing in the growing of the crop. But the farmer has his means of tilling and sowing and watering, fertilizing. He does these things. And that is what revival is to Finney. So what is revival? We've got a little bit of time here. I want to cover what he says it is. We already kind of mentioned it. Let me read the entire kind of paragraph. He says this, so I am to show what a revival is, part two. It is a renewal of the first love of Christians resulting in the awakening conversion of sinners to God. In the popular sense, the revival of religion is a community, is the arousing, quickening, and reclaiming of more or less backsliding church and more or less general awakening of all classes in attention to the claims of God. It presupposes that the church has sunk down into a backsliding state and revival consists in the return of the church from her backsliding and in conversion of sinners. A revival always includes conviction of sin on the part of the church. Backsliding professors cannot wake up and begin right away in the service of God without deep searching of heart. The fountains of sin needs to be broken up. In true revival, Christians are always brought under the convictions. They see their sins in such a light that they often find it impossible to maintain a hope of their acceptance with God. It does not always go to that extent. 